Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversations on Sex, Addiction, and Relationships. I'm Tim Stein, and I'm joined today with my friends Jeannie Vitoni, Wendy Conquest, and Dan Drake. We are joined today with psychologist Erica Saar. We all know her from our sex addiction betrayal trauma world, but she's also an expert in internet addiction and gaming addiction, which is what we're going to talk about today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Jeannie, Wendy, Dan, how are you doing and what's on your mind today? I love being on the podcast with you guys. You guys are so much fun. Erica is a superstar. So I love to listen to her. She has such great specializations. And for us to dig into the gaming and internet and the addiction piece and what's healthy behavior, what's not healthy behavior, I think it's going to be a really great discussion. Yeah, I'm really excited. I think this is going to be a great podcast for individuals, but I think it's going to also be great for parents, I'm hoping, um, because I think uh, as the generations, as technology changes with gen generations, I think a lot of times I'll just say perhaps, uh, perhaps I'll, I'll use myself for example, um, uh, I, when my kids were growing up and, um, they were using cell phones and, and doing gaming, I mean, I was clueless. It was, it's like, wow, this is really new and I don't know what's okay and what's not okay. And if I'm being too strict or too permissive. So, um, I'm, I want to learn more. Yeah. I think we, I, I, and our focus is sex addiction when things get problematic with sexuality or pornography and i'm curious to take a little bit step back and look at technology and internet and gaming and how this kind of works together but also just i'm curious to see where it goes I, I don't know if you guys have read the book irresistible but i found that was an interesting take on just how technology how how addictive it can be and kind of what how it works in our brains and how you know apps and games are key right into this addictive potential so i'm just curious to, to learn more this i will say this last sunday i decided okay i'm not going to um on on sunset saturday to sunset on sunday i'm not going to be using my phone and i'm not going to get on my computer and i'm not going to do any, any technology and i felt like a caged animal i i did not know uh, what to do with myself my irritability increased i was like wow this is this is a little crazy you know for one day um abstaining basically abstaining um i'm gonna try it again this week so we'll see what happens i'm i'm dying to hear how that goes for you <laughs> and it's good maybe it's a good thing we've got erica on here just for you <laughs> maybe i'm addicted <laughs> Could be. Well, erica you want to go ahead and hop in and join us absolutely hey there. Hey guys. i'm really excited to be here welcome, welcome. Help us put this in perspective. Is everything fine and we don't have any kind of <clears throat> pandemic of gaming and internet addiction, internet addiction coming our way? Or are the curmudgeons right? And oh my God, everyone's addicted to everything and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, somewhere in between, unfortunately. That's the very therapeutic answer, right? It's in the gray area. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's, there's, I'm I'm absolutely gonna, gonna butcher this quote, but uh, Douglas Adams, who wrote um, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he has this great like long quote about technology. And again, I'm gonna paraphrase it here, but basically he says like, any technology that existed from like when you were born to about when you're like 18 is like just the way the world works. 
Mm. Anything that happens that, that's invented technologically from when you're about 20 to 35 is cool and futuristic and you can probably get a job in it. And any technology that's invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. <laughs> um, and so what we what we see when we talk about technology, when we look at the history of like video games and video game, not just video game addiction, but video games as a as a medium is that one panic after another that the, the latest iteration is surely to be the end of humanity. Um, so far, we've managed to come over every hurdle. I have every faith we'll survive the latest hurdles of TikTok and, you know, whatever's whatever comes next, right? So. Excellent. I was, um, so one of the, you know, Wendy was just sharing and, and I was curious, like, where is healthy and where is unhealthy and where's the line between that? And of course, you know, our, our, how do we tell if an addiction is there? Maybe we should start there. I mean, I think that's really like closely related to like when we talk about sex addiction, it's so much different than when you're talking about like heroin addiction, right? Like nobody's ever told me that there's a recreational amount of heroin that's a good thing to do. Um, well, they've tried, but they've never convinced me. Um, <laughs> but when we think about behavioral addictions, right? When we think about sex, when we think about gambling because that uh, chance drive is built into us as, as survival creatures, things like that, it gets much harder because the, the, the answer can't be never have sex. The answer can't be never eat again. And the answer can't be don't interact with technology because that's just not possible anymore. I mean, that was the answer. When I first started my career, I worked forensically. So I worked with convicted sex offenders. And if you were a convicted sex offender, you lost your technology. You were not allowed to have any in your home. If you were by special circumstance, it was monitored by the government very closely. And more and more people are like, I can't go to school. I can't get a job. I can't function, which puts me at higher risk for recidivism. And so even in the most constrained part of uh, someone who's you know being monitored because of their criminal activity, we've had to start to build in that technology is just part of our lives. So when we start looking at what constitutes addictive behavior, I was thinking about that earlier today. And I really like in one of her like old videos, Brene Brown said, everybody soothes, but addicts do it chronically and compulsively, mm. right? <laughs> so everybody has a bad day, a death in the family, something happens. So you have a glass of wine, you have a pint of Haagen-Dazs, you binge a show on Netflix, or you play video games until four in the morning. And if you do that once in a while, that's not that big a deal, right? We, we all need to soothe sometimes. Um, but when we can't interact with our emotions at all, when we need every emotion, every emotion to be soothed, then we're really running into a problem, however we're choosing to soothe it, which is why I like talking about like the connection of not just video games, but technology and all of these other things, because you don't want somebody to get sober from one addiction, but they still don't know how to manage their emotions. So they just move on to something else, um, which is really common. Um, yeah. So sorry go ahead i was just gonna say so so what i hear you saying is that with internet and gaming addiction that 
that there's a, a withdrawal pattern as well. And here I'll go a little tongue in cheek and say, so how much does Wendy have to be concerned that she freaks out when she can't have her phone for a day? Um, I think everybody should be mildly concerned um, because I, I heard Dan reference uh, Irresistible, um, which is Adam Alter's book, and it's fantastic. Um, I also tell people to read Nair Al's book, which is Hooked, which is about how to build addictive products. Um, and it's really the technology that exists has taken all of the psychology we have of human experience and learning and said, how do we make people not want to put our products down? And then sometimes make them incapable of putting our products down. And so every time I do a technology talk, I always have a spot where I say, and how many of you have checked your phones since I started talking? And it's always the sheepish 99%, right? Because we as therapists, especially have like an extra, like, oh, but it could be the office or have this emergency, but everybody's got that, right? Parents are like, well, I have to check on my kids or I have to, you know, oh, the stock market could be doing something or, 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 or. So there's always a reason that we need to be interacting with this technology. Um, and it's become an expectation, right? People get fussy when you don't get back to them right away. Like, maybe I wanna take a day to consider an answer that I wanna give somebody and they're like, so you're ignoring me. I'm like, no. Um, but one of the ways that our brain sort of processes the technology is when we're like, just take texting, for example. When we're texting with somebody, our brain apprehends them as though we are in live space with them and having a conversation with them. So if I stop answering and want to consider what I want to text somebody for 20 minutes or two hours or two days, it's like we were mid-conversation. Like if we were doing this podcast and all of a sudden I was just like, and you guys were like, uh, did we lose her? Are you okay? Did you have a stroke? Like what's going on? Because our brain is saying this person was actively involved in conversation with me and it's not normal for it to just stop. Kind of reminds me of the still face experiment where, you know, you're engaging and then all of a sudden when it stops, it's really upsetting for the still face experience with infants and how, how hardwired that is to stay connected. So that's, that's interesting. I didn't really think about it that what it might mean if we don't get these texts immediately. Back. Yeah. Interrupt and say to our, our listeners, if you're not familiar with the still face experiment, you can go onto YouTube and you can type in still face experiment and you can you can see the experiment with the infant and the mother. And it's actually rather profound. Right. And this is all about we're talking about attachment and attunement and healthy uh, interpersonal dynamics. And I've been wondering about that. I um I uh, when I text, it's like, how do you how do you end the text stream? And, and so many text streams, they just sort of go, just say they kind of uh, filter away. And I've asked myself, well, am, I, am I done talking to them? Do I say, okay, have a nice day. And then they go a thumbs up. And then do I send a heart emoji? Or like, I, I don't know text etiquette. And so I think so many people don't either. And I love this, Erica, because... I really believe we have a hunter-gatherer brain. And so I really uh, am concerned that we, we, we can't distinguish between virtual and real. 
we think we can, but I, I believe we can't. And that, and I also believe that's why pornography usage is so upsetting and disturbing to partners is in their minds, they, it's the same as actually being with a live woman. So I'm really glad you brought this up. When yeah, it's, sorry, go ahead, Jeannie. Thank, I was going to say, interesting when you say the texting etiquette, because what came to mind is my young adult children, you know, texting is so different with them. So, and I'm mom, so they'll text me back, you know, a day later kind of a thing. But I wonder if the etiquette piece is different by groups of ages or generation. And, and I don't, I don't have that insight, you know, into those, in those worlds as much, but I bet it's different. And I guess I'll leave that to Erica. <laughs> it, it is. It's really fascinating. So if you see people like my parents' generation, like my mom for a long time, like wrote every text like a letter. So she would write what she was going to say. And then she would say, love mom, like at the end of every text, because that's how you wrote an email, which was already a step for her so she's like okay well did this make sense it's like writing a letter and she's like text her just short letters and I'm like kind of if you want to say love mom at the end of every text that's okay but like you don't have to I know it's from you um it was really interesting when when you guys were talking about the attachment part and like when do you end a text and I don't have specific research about like, here's when, here, here's how you end texting, because I think it really does have to do with the relationship that exists. Like I have friends that we cut off mid conversation, but our relationship is good. And so I know they probably just had a client call, they fell asleep, you know, some, you know, they got engrossed in a Netflix show. And unless I was like, Hey, I just told you something really profound and painful and I need you here. I just kind of assume that we're okay. But there's a really fascinating body of literature starting to come out about ghosting, um, which is when you don't yet have a good relationship with somebody, a strong relationship, I would say. You know, you've just met somebody on dating sites or somebody you're just starting to become friends with, or maybe even somebody you've like interviewed with for a job and they don't get back to you. The amount of distress we feel is, dis is much higher than if somebody said, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Because our brain is like, our brain loathes uncertainty because we can't make safety out of uncertainty. And so we always want to get this definitive answer of like, do you like me or do you not like me? Are we good or are we not good? Which is also not the human experience. Sometimes it's like, mm, I like you, but not right now. I you know, I, we're good here, but we're not good about this one thing. And technology is not yet as great as I think it should be, or will be at conveying the nuances of human experience. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of mistranslation that happens. You know, there's a lot of, that's why emojis were invented because in, when the first text chats that people were having, they turned into these really aggressive flame wars because people didn't realize that people were making jokes and they thought people were being hostile. So they're like, I'm gonna invent this smiley face so you know I'm kidding. And that was our first foray into expressing emotion as part of our kind of technological discussion, so. Mm. You know, and I'm thinking like circling back to gaming, for example, 
I'm just wondering, it just, you know, it's coming together for me of the expression of emotions, the expression of relationships, but experienced in this virtual experience. It's instead of, you know, do I back with the texting like this, I receive, I, I sent and I was received. And I wonder if there's a need of that in the gaming as well, a sense of closure and opportunity and adventure. But it's interesting because gaming, you can you can have a headset and be talking to people depending on what platform you're using. I mean, there's all different types of yeah. things that you can do. So I guess you'd have to determine what what you're doing and if you're part of a group or something. I mean, what what are you turning to for games? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, what and there's really there's really different psychological effects that people experience from gaming depending on how they game, right? So, like, dive into that. <laughs> What was that? Dive into that. So like everybody worries about like, do like one of the biggest things is people are like, do video games make people violent? Mm-hmm. No, they don't make people violent. But the the one area where you're likely to see people get conditioned to more aggression, like more appropriate, like not appropriate, but to, to feel that aggression is more appropriate. It doesn't make them more aggressive if they didn't already have an aggressive tendency there. So it's not like this is the end of the universe, but is when you get stranger versus stranger first person shooters, um, people tend to get pretty hostile because they don't think about or know the person that they are shooting at. And it's constructed in such a way that your body is flooded with all of the chemicals and hormones that say, I'm, someone's trying to kill me. Mm-hmm. It is natural for me to feel aggressive in response to that. So those kind of um, games become a magnet pulling out sort of those aggressive tendencies if you've got them. Exactly. Yeah. Can I just on that, like, so I'll just say, so I played Halo back in the day, like a lot, a lot, probably got a minor in grad school or college or whatever when i started playing it we used to play we would hook up tvs to back in the day before it was online we'd hook up tvs when you could network it and you'd have a bunch of people we'd have pizzas and whatever and like we could trash talk you know you you shoot someone kill them on the, the game and it's just it's fun because you're just like haha i got you but it is it's so different when it when it switched online we thought this is amazing you'd still play with your friends online but then you have these strangers coming in and you know, after they kill you, they you can hear what they're saying because they're right above you, and it's it's pretty brutal. I stopped playing them; I just couldn't handle it anymore. It was too it was aggressive, and it wasn't it got, it wasn't fun anymore. It wasn't just friendly trash talking. It was just it started to get aggressive and not fun. So, I mean, what you're saying makes sense. I've, I experienced that because I the difference between the the two experiences of friends playing together in the same room versus now we're online with these strangers is so different. Yeah. And really playing with people you actually know is like one of, when they first really started researching video games, especially multiplayer video games. So like when World of Warcraft first came out and was so huge, you know, it, they really looked at people who use the social aspects of gaming experience the negative effects much less. Um, because they're they're using it as a platform of connection. What does what do you mean by that? People that use the social aspects of the gaming. Can you flesh that out? Yeah. So an earlier question was like, how do we know like someone has an addiction, right? Like how do they how do we know they have a ga- a gaming addiction or something like that? 
when when someone starts to experience a, like a gaming addiction, you'll start to see an increase in withdrawal from other people. You'll see an increase in loneliness, an increase in depression. Um, sometimes that translates to an increase in aggression, things like that. But they found that people who like sit down next to their friend playing Super Mario or their family, they had the lowest instance of having those negative effects. They're sitting there in a room with somebody or even like Dan was talking about with like land parties and things like that, right? You're like there, it's a communal social experience. And then like the next kind of best, I'm gonna say that very lightly, I don't like finger quotes, but I seem to be doing them today. Um, <laughs> the sort of the next best would be playing with people you know, but at a distance. So like if I wanted to play video games with my brother who lives in Boston, you know, we know each other, we can't see each other, but this is a way we can interact. Mm -hmm. Then there's forming a, like a core group of people who have, like shared values and things that you want to be like. And maybe they're people you've never met, but you start to form relationships with them and what they think, what they say matters to you. And you can use them socially, right? Even if you've never met them, there's still a social interaction that you're having with them. And so we're getting more and more distant from people, but we're still like, this is still we form a connection but the more you drift out into i'm just playing with other strangers who don't know me and i don't know them and i don't care how they feel and they don't care how i feel you're getting into like you know if we remember like al cooper talks about the triple a engine of like what makes the internet so addictive and one of the things is anonymity right like because that there's a part of us that's like ooh, let me just sort of delve into my id and be the worst version of myself or the best version of myself or the most uninhibited version of myself. And the less you know about me, the more I can hide behind a screen name, the more of that sometimes that stuff will start to pour out and take over and become problematic. For those of you listening, just a reminder that today we're talking with uh, psychologist Erica Saar about internet addiction and gaming addiction. Uh, and continuing that conversation. I want to circle back to something. You had talked about the gamification of online stuff. And I noticed that I ever, I, 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 I saw you talk, you know, mm -hmm. and all this stuff sort of just sort of was so mind opening for me. And as I've been paying attention, I noticed gamification showing up in all kinds of, of apps that I use that I find really helpful, but it's still a gamification of that. Can, can you talk about the gamification of apps and other uh, stuff and, and how it can be helpful, but how it can be significantly problematic? Yeah, and what it is and yeah, what, what, what is, I mean, what I have happens. some guesses of what it is, but let's, let's do a really nice definition because. You mean I my saying the gamification wasn't like enough to just give it an explanation so well, Eric, can you define gamification for us yeah very sort of very broadly gamification is taking aspects of a game and using it to make a process or a um, product more appealing and really <clears throat> There are, there are a few aspects to 
like if you get into like super nerdy if you get into game theory like what makes a game it's basically like that it doesn't have very many components it's that has to be voluntary there is a there are stated goals and rules and there are voluntary obstacles like so if you think about golf right like the goal of golf is to put the ball in the hole. Well, the fastest way to do that would be to pick it up, walk it over and put it in the hole. But to make it a game, we said, no, no, you've got to hit it with this stick from really far away. And the goal is the fewest hits with the stick, right? So that made, you know, golf into a game. So companies say, oh, well, people choose games even if games are difficult they choose to overcome obstacles in order to be part of this game so we can use that to overcome obstacles which is really great for example if you have uh students who are having a hard time taking in a certain subject you're like okay well let's make a game out of it um oh one of my favorite examples uh isn't a school example but one of my favorite examples is um, we're talking about uh, some of the worst pain somebody can experience. We're talking about a children's burn unit and they brought in this game. Uh, it, I forget the title, but it was winter something like that. And it was all about throwing snowballs and about the cold and things like that. And it was about using the game to develop a sense of being able to manage their sensory experience of like how cold they were mm. and whatever it was about that made them better able to modulate their pain mm. which anything we can do to make that experience less painful let's do it right yeah. so rather than them saying oh i have to no i have to go to therapy or i have to go through this experience of somebody telling me how it doesn't hurt as bad as i think it hurts it hurts really really bad this is a way that games could help somebody learn something without like directly having to learn it mm -hmm. so that's kind of like the pro side right you can you can make classes out of it you can make you can make doing anything more appealing there's whole things like chore wars where you can uh, battle against your loved one about who's going to get the most chore points, you know, so somebody gets up early to take out the trash so they can win that day. On the flip side, right, so if we talk about sort of gamification for profit, right, so we don't care if people are happy or successful, we just care if they come to our product. That's really where gamification can go awry, because then they can tap into um, all the stuff that makes gambling really addictive, right? They can tap into our, like our scarcity brain where they're like, well, every day you log in, you get a progressive reward. But if you miss one day, you go back to zero because it's that foot in the door technique. If I can get you on my platform, it's more likely you're going to spend some money. And when, but people are like, well, what about phone games? They're free. Here's what I tell people. If you don't know what somebody's selling you, you're the product. Mm -hmm. So but the free phone games, you're the product because you have to watch ads. That's what they're selling is to their advertisers. And so they need you to be on the app to watch the ads so the advertisers will pay them money, right? So that's why they will give you a free game. And hopefully 
with microtransactions and things like that, hopefully they also get you spending money, right? Oh, it's just 99 cents for this. It's 99 cents for that. And the first time I ever gave a talk about video game addiction, there was a psychologist in the front row. And he goes, yeah, this is all very interesting, but how do I get my wife to stop spending $300 a month on Candy Crush? Like, because it just, those microtransactions, it's the same way when we think about slot machines and they're like, oh, it's just a penny. But if you want all the lines, it's actually $2 a spin, you know? And so it's, it's tapping into those that, that if we think about social media, it's that FOMO, right? That fear of missing out. So I've got to fully extend myself because if I don't, I could really miss out. So that's where the gamification can go really arise it gives people a lot of anxiety if they don't interact with the technology which wendy was kind of talking about and it's really powerful i i i see it showing up sometimes where it actually gets in the way of what the stated purpose of the of the of it is i have some clients that either with my permission or when i think that they're ready and we're doing this together are talking about how to date and they often want to go to dating apps. And one of the things I point out is dating apps are very gamified and it's very easy for the point of the gaming app, of the <laughs> of the dating app to be, I've matched with somebody and that's the reward that they get. And then they move on to find another match as opposed to, oh, I've, I've matched with somebody and now we're going to meet and see if this relationship works. That the app sometimes actually gets in the way of actually getting out there and meeting people. Well, it's really funny because if you think about some of the major dating apps, and again, when I talk about, like, if I give an example of a particular video game or a particular app or something, I'm not saying that app or that game is the problem. We're talking about an underlying process, right? Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I think was really fascinating working with people with sex addiction too and, and intimacy issues is a lot of the apps are built where... Um, like women have to like are the ones that have to initiate because like there's a lot of a sort of at least with straight apps uh, with straight identified folks like there's a lot of um, like men over initiating so a lot of the apps are built like hey you can say you like this woman but if she says she likes you that's the only way you're going to be able to start talking okay well they've totally hacked that what they do is they just say yes to everybody and then when a woman matches with them, then they get the hit of accepting or rejecting them regardless. They're like, oh, we matched. Oh, I don't like you. I'm going to unmatch with you. But I got the hit of knowing that you liked me. Um, um, that happens really frequently. So we're very creative, even within confines that are not meant to be gamified, to be able to get our, our hits where we want them. Can you... Erica, can you, the, I, so this FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. And um, when I first heard that acronym and, you know, the terminology, I was like a fear of missing out. Well, that's, I can understand that. And no one wants to be like they're, you know, it wants to feel like they're not part of something fun happening or not part of a particular group. Um, but I have a sense it's, it's it goes deeper than that. Well, what's your sense before I say something? Yeah, well, you know, so I'm I'm relating it to my experience on, on Sunday. And it's like, well, what was the irritability about? 
Um, and was it that I gotten to the point where um, decades ago, I trained myself to be able to be by myself, whether that was doing a crossword puzzle or meditating or doing some artwork. And it was, it's, it was glorious. It was lovely. And so when the Sunday was like, well, I don't know what to do if I am not on my computer or my phone or chatting with someone or uh, calling somebody up. Oh, you know, I need to connect with them after the holidays. Um, so what, what is this? And so all of a sudden now I'm being struck with, well, was, was it this underlying experience of, um, I'm, I, if I'm, if I'm not on technology, then I'm not connected, even though that logically that makes no sense to me, <laughs> but on a, on an, a, maybe on an emotional level or a psychological level, is that, is that, you know, what is happening? I think it's probably layered depending on the person, right? Like part of it is just the raw chemical conditioning, right? It is just rat and lever conditioning, right? You, you know, you push the lever, we give you some dopamine in terms of a response. And so you just, even if you have cultivated an ability to be in solitude, like I'm the same way, I'm good at solitude, but if I, if I make myself take a phone vacation, I am itchy and I'm like, I would have sworn that I wouldn't want my phone as badly as I do. Now, if you get to even younger generations who have been raised, there was a study, it was like 2016 or something like that from the University of Iowa, where they told people they had two options. They could sit in a room without any distractions or technology or anything. They just had to sit quietly for two hours or they could receive an electric shock. <laughs> Like these are their options. Like 65% of people said, shock me rather than take away my phone. Like, wow. so some of it is that dopamine stuff, but some of it is more and more people are not learning how to be with themselves in the same way that um, past generations did. And people are like, well, is that a good or bad thing? I'm like, I don't know. We don't know yet but we have a brain that is built for the old form of communication. And so there's bound to be some mismatches. Um, for some people, you know, technology opens up doors that they could never have, right? They can't, you know, somebody who has a disability and can't get out and communicate with people, you know, the, the era of telework and things like that has opened all kinds of doors for them. But for people who really struggle with, social anxiety they're like oh well I just never have to go outside ever again I never have to face it right like it's a phenomenon oh, I'm gonna get it wrong I think it's like uh in Japan I think it's called like karakushi I'm gonna say it totally wrong but it's like the lonely life mm -hmm. and it was this phenomenon where people would just stop leaving their homes they weren't agoraphobic necessarily but it was just like oh well I can get everything delivered here I'm not good in social situations. I just won't do that anymore. And that's what I worry about with like, uh, a couple months ago, I gave a talk on like sex robots and the, people are like, well, isn't that great? I'm like, yes and no, there are some great things, but there are also some people who are like, oh, I have horrible intimacy issues. I have fears of abandonment. I'll just buy a robot who can't ever leave me and I'll stop trying to make connections with people because it's too hard and too scary. Um, 
sorry, my brain connects lots of things in strange ways. So hopefully it's still tracking for everybody who's not me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Dan? Well, I was yeah. just thinking, you know, I'm, 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 there's so, I'm sure we could talk in a million different directions. I'm, I'm just curious. You talked about, you know, it, we're all using technology. It's part of life. It is, it is what it is. It's part of it. And it, there's some really amazing things that come from it. Um, for those that, that are listening where they feel like it may be a problem, um, what are, what are some things that people can be looking for? You know, if, if we're on the far end where it's problematic or for, for those that are like, you know, it's not so much of a problem, but are there things that might, might, you know, warning signs that I'm getting to be a problem? Are there anything you could say to those that are listening? Great. Yeah. I would say think about technology as a tool. And so as a tool, is it furthering your goals, but taking a really brutally honest look at that, like a really common area that will will have people who maybe have like social anxiety or depression or things like that they're like well being online playing video games helps me communicate i'm learning how to communicate i'm like okay great tell me how you're taking the skills that you are practicing in this virtual environment and applying them to improve your real world existence they usually can't tell me that i said so this is the problem what you're doing is you want to disappear into this fantasy world where you are a powerful mage or a you know sexy creature or whatever it is like whatever flaws you see in yourself you get to just sort of divorce yourself of those things and that person is full of confidence but that person is also you and so it's okay for you to practice things there but they have to translate back into the real world and if you can tell me how you're doing that and we can keep an eye on that and it's not overbalanced to a virtual direction great, then you're using technology as the tool you intended it for. Um, so really what I tell people is if you're worried, really start to say, is technology helping me or interfering with the life that I really truly want? Now that's a deep question because a lot of people don't know what they truly want. And that's even harder when we get to adolescents and young adults who like the, the purpose of that stage of their life is to start to figure out what they want. And so it's, it's a lot, it's really easy to get caught in a trap at that time of your life um, because you don't have a clearly defined vision that you can see yourself drifting from. So I really recommend it's, it's not really like a self-helpy kind of book, but it's a, it's, it's a very accessible read. I think Jane McGonigal is something of like a goddess sent to earth. Like I'm super fangirly about her. <laughs> uh, but her first book, Reality is Broken, really talks about the amazing things that we get out of being gamers. But the, the solution isn't to disappear into video games. The solution is to then apply those things to fixing the world, whether that's the microcosm of fixing my own life, uh, which she did in her next book, Super Better, which I think is fantastic. It's one of those examples of you using gamification in a really profound way that was like replicated by uh, university studies and it's really a cool model. Or, you know, or in a macro level, right? Like that we can take, you know, uh, what was it? One of the great things that they 
again, I use World of Warcraft because they used it for so many, it was so, you know, so large and so popular and so expansive. There was a, a, a plague outbreak during one expansion in a city that wasn't intended, you know, and they use that actual modeling to watch how plagues spread. Like what will people do during outbreaks? And they got real world data about what people will do in unforeseen plague circumstances that they could then apply to later life, you know, which became fairly relevant to us a couple of years ago. So, mm. um, so yeah, ho hopefully that's kind of a start of an answer. So if, um, if someone thinks that they, you know, they, they do their sort of self-analysis and they're looking at it and they come to the conclusion of, I, I think that this is an issue for me, mm -hmm. or I think this is an issue for somebody that I love where do they turn to, to get some help and some guidance? Uh, there's a couple options. Um, there, Hillary Cash has just put out a really good workbook on video game addiction. Um, and so that's a thing that you could work through with on your own or with a therapist. It's got kind of a model to look at from an addiction perspective. I think Sometimes if you're aware of the underlying things, driving the coping mechanism, most competent therapists could help you then. They don't have to understand Minecraft to say, I play Minecraft when I have anxiety. Be like, okay, cool. Well, I know people who do lots of other things when they have anxiety, I can help you, right? So it's not just, I have to find a super specialist. Um, but it is, I think it is important to remember that, for a lot of folks, myself included, it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this, being a gamer is an identity. And so to tell people, well, just stop playing video games is inc feels incredibly reductive and painful. Like that, that what I'm doing feels silly to you, so I must be silly in some way. I'm immature, only children play games, all that kind of stuff. And I think some of that stuff is coming out now in you know, in the social media world where people are like, well, I want to be an influencer. And somebody's like, well, that's like, who cares what you think? Like, that's so painful when you say, you know, say that to somebody, even well-intentioned, like, hey, you need to build some skills because what happens if you don't get successful as an influencer? But the, if there's an identity tied up in that, you know, there, there can be a real sense of grieving and of loss. And so, handling handling that part handling handling that part of their identity with some some gentleness and respect is also a good way to keep them motivated so i'm sitting here in awe <laughs> just listen i'm just like i can just sit here and listen to erica for the next 3 hours on this subject because it's so fascinating it's so complex there's so many offshoots to it i mean think about this we are talking about texting and communication and the need for resolution and then gaming and then how the games are created and gamification and I'm just uh, identification issues I mean this is so diverse this is you know we we may be asking you for back to continue this conversation on a different piece because I'm just a little overwhelmed actually by the largeness of this topic and if you know Jeannie, her being overwhelmed is not a common experience. <laughs> Very true. Very true. It, yeah, it I'm is so intrigued. 
It is one of the things when we started, when the concept of internet addiction first was being bandied about, it was really one of the things that we had to, to think about and, and still are, is are people addicted to the process or the product? So like uh, working in sex addiction, sometimes people are addicted to pornography, which is the product. Sometimes they are addicted to the process, which is the searching, the clicking, Sometimes it's both, right? Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it gets even more complex. Like I did a whole talk on like digital hoarding, right? Pornography hoarding, which is its own compulsive process beyond the pornographic content. And so when you start thinking about technology addiction, some people can be addicted to the process. But like you said, sometimes it's actually just the gateway to to all of the underlying processes that they're struggling with, whether it's about identity or connection or attachment or you name it, so. This has been such a fascinating conversation, Erica. Thank you so, so much for joining us. It's, this has been wonderful. My absolute pleasure. You're some of my favorite people. So happy to spend time with you. <laughs> well, we're It's been amazing. I just so appreciate you coming and sharing your knowledge. Thank you so much. No problem at all. Thanks, Erica. Well, to all of you listening out there, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Be sure to rate us on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, wherever you're finding us out there. It helps other people to find us and what we're doing and uh, we wish you all the best in your day.